I am going to begin where I ended five or six Sundays ago by reading from this little book, Don't Waste Your Life, by John Piper. If you were here five or six Sundays ago, undoubtedly you'll remember this excerpt. Uh, He writes, in April 2000, Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was this a tragedy? No. That is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted, and these lives were not lost. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells of a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, And let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. This morning, we are going to consider what it means to be devoted to the Lord Jesus. And the intent of that story, which I just read for you, will become self-evident. The title for this sermon is actually Lavish Devotion. Devotion is dedication. Not mere dedication. It is dedication arising from strong and fervent affection. And so the the title for this sermon is Lavish Devotion. We come face to face with an example of lavish devotion in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. So I encourage you to open up your Bible if you have one at hand. So that portion of God's word, again, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11, the title for the sermon, Lavish Devotion. What is devotion? It is dedication, arising from strong and fervent affection. This sermon isn't unrelated uh, to last Sunday's sermon. Last Sunday, we finished up in chapter 13, specifically We consider verses 32 through 37. The message of the Lord Jesus in those verses 
is very simple. Uh, The certainty of his return and the uncertainty of the timing of his return means what? We must stay awake. We must be found prepared. We must be ready. Why? I gave you five reasons. Again, this is last Sunday. Number one, it gives hope. Readiness gives hope for enduring affliction. Number two, it gives urgency for avoiding deception. Number three, it gives strength for combating sin. Number four, it gives, gives resolve for overcoming worldliness. And number five, it gives zeal for serving Christ. Listen to this next sentence I'm going to share with you. What we believe concerning the future determines how we live in the present. It's so true, you know. What we believe concerning the future determines how we live in the present. In times of adversity, the church always tightens its grip on its hope. The return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, the renovation of the entire universe, and the consummation of all things. In the midst of adversity, the church always tightens its grip, its hold, on those marvelous truths, its hope, equally true. In times of prosperity, the church tends to loosen its grip. It's still something we pull out at funerals in order to encourage one another. And yet it is rarely mentioned in times of prosperity. The implications are obvious. When the church removes its hope from its center, the result is always careless living. Always careless living. I was going through some old notes of mine this past week and I found a quote from David Platt. Now listen to these words. If your life or my life is going to count on earth, we must start by concentrating on heaven. That is excellent. I mean, that is really, really good. Let me repeat it. If your life or my life is going to count on earth, let me add, right here, right now, at present, if your or my life is going to count on earth, We must start by concentrating on heaven. Why? Because what we believe concerning the future determines, it is the determining factor in how we live at present. And So that's why the Lord Jesus says there in chapter 13, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now the message is not unrelated to his message in the text into which we enter this morning. And so follow along in chapter 14 as I begin reading in verse 1. Again, I'm only going to go as far as verse 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, the starting point, what we need to begin with is this. We must recognize that in these verses, number them off, 1 through 11, Mark, it's actually Peter. I mean, according to church tradition, and this tradition is is very reliable, it's actually Peter dictating, and Mark is simply putting Peter's speech to work. But we'll we'll refer to Mark because he's credited with the book. Uh, In these 11 verses, Mark brings together places together two totally unrelated events. The first event we read of in verses 1 and 2, and again in verses 10 and 11. And notice when this event takes place. Mark tells us right there in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover And so he has already recorded, going all the way back to chapter 11, verse 1, he has already recorded what happened on Sunday. Remember, this is Passion Week, which is going to culminate in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Mark has already recorded what happened on Sunday. He has already told us what happened on Monday. And he has already informed us as to what happened on Tuesday. Now we've arrived at Wednesday, two days prior to Passover. And what Mark tells us in these verses, again, verses 1 and 2, verses 10 and 11, is that on Wednesday, the scribes, the priests, representative of the Jewish religious authorities, they're putting their minds together, they're brainstorming. And what they are trying to do, what they are trying to determine is a way, a manner in which they can arrest the Lord Jesus and kill him. But they want to do so secretly. Why? Passover is just a couple of days away. That means hundreds of thousands of people have gathered in Jerusalem. They don't want to create a revolt. They don't want to create any trouble. And so they want to arrest him secretly. They want to kill him secretly. In verses 10 and 11, what happens? They don't approach Judas. That's interesting. Judas approaches them. Evidently, Judas and the rest of the disciples know precisely what's going on. They know exactly what is transpiring. And so Judas knows precisely what they are plotting. He seeks them out. He says, I understand what you're plotting. I understand your difficulty. You don't want to create problems with this crowd, this multitude around here. You want to arrest him secretly. I can do that for you. I know his schedule. I know where he spends his evenings. I know where he passes the night. I will betray him. That is, I will hand him over to you. That is the first event. The opposition 
the open hostility and the sinister plotting of the scribes and the priests, that is the Jewish religious authorities. The second event, this escapes our notice with a casual reading. The second event is recorded in verses 3 through 9. It doesn't happen on the Wednesday. If we turn over to John's gospel account, and we go specifically to chapter 12, you read the very first verse, John tells us when this event actually takes place. It is six days before Passover. Passover is on the Friday. So this event in verses 3 through 9 actually takes place on the preceding Saturday. Now, are you getting this? In this event on the preceding Saturday, what happens? Jesus is in the town of Bethany. That's where he spends the night. He visits Jerusalem during the day, during the Passion Week, and in the evening he walks back and he spends the night, passes the night in Bethany. This particular night, the first Saturday, he spends it in the home of Simon the leper. He's reclining at table. That's just a way of saying he's eating his supper. This woman comes in nameless. John tells us who this woman is. It's Mary. That is the sister of Lazarus and Martha. What does she do? She has this expensive ointment, this this vial or this container, this box, this flask of precious ointment. She breaks it, anoints his head. The disciples scold her, and the Lord Jesus commends her. So have you got the two events? That first event that Mark refers to, verses 1 and 2, verses 10 and 11, that is Wednesday of Passion Week, the opposition of the Jewish religious authorities. The second event actually predates the Wednesday. It takes us back to the preceding Saturday. It should lead us to ask an obvious question. Why does Mark organize his material like this? He organizes it thematically in this case, not chronologically. Why? Why does he bring these two totally unrelated events together that happen days apart, are disconnected, and have absolutely nothing to do with one another? On top of that, moreover, why does Mark see fit to actually sandwich the second event between his account of the first event? That's what we have, don't we? We have the second event recorded in verses 3 through 9, and it is sandwiched between the first event in verses 1 and 2, Verses 10 and 11, they are bookends, they are parentheses surrounding this event which takes place on the preceding Saturday in the house of Simon the leper. Why does Mark bring these two unrelated events together in this fashion? Simply put, Mark is using the sinister to accentuate the magnificent. Mark is using the hideous accentuate the beautiful. Mark is using the dark to accentuate the light. Mark is using their malicious opposition to accentuate her lavish devotion. That's why he brings them together. And so in verses 3 through 9, just like this diamond on display, in all its splendor, We have this nameless woman, we know her to be Mary, coming, seeking out the Lord Jesus, breaking this box of ointment perfume, anointing the Lord Jesus, the disciples ridiculing her, scolding her, Jesus himself commending her. Why? Because against the backdrop of that hostility, 
against the backdrop of the darkness of that opposition and betrayal, here is a woman who displays such lavish devotion. In the verses, really beginning in verse 6 through to verse 8, Jesus makes three comments, three remarks concerning this woman's lavish devotion. Three comments. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at them in sequence. One, two, three. And from each, we are going to glean a mark or a characteristic of lavish devotion. And so Jesus' first remark, we see it there in verse 6. What does he say concerning Mary? She has done a beautiful thing to me. There's remark number one. She has done a beautiful, lovely, wonderful thing to me. What makes it beautiful? Go back into verse 3. Mark tells us that this alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard is what? It is very costly. In the fifth verse, he tells us that it is actually worth, or rather the disciples inform us that it is actually worth 300 Denarii. That's meaningless. Until we acknowledge the fact that uh, your average laborer, your average worker, back in those days, uh, would be paid one denarii per day. So 300 denarii is getting pretty close to what? Your average worker's annual salary. That's the value of this ointment. Why is it so valuable? Mark tells us back in verse 3, it is pure nard. Nard is a plant, from what I understand, that only grows in one place in the world. The Himalayas, in Nepal, India. It grows in the Himalayas. It grows at more or less twelve to 15,000 feet in altitude. And so people would have to climb the Himalayas, find this plant, do whatever is necessary to produce this ointment, and then transport it all the way, this is 2,000 years ago, no getting on a jet plane, 2,000 years ago, all the way from present-day India to present-day Israel. And so it is rare. And because it is rare, it is precious. And because it is precious, it is valuable. And because it is valuable, Jesus says what concerning Mary's actions? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has publicly displayed, she has publicly manifested her estimation of me by offering what? That which is most valuable to her. Her most valuable, her most precious, her most costly possession. She has given it all. Now that's Christ's comment. Here is the lesson we're going to derive from it. Listen carefully to these words. This is mark number one of lavish devotion. Lavish devotion makes much of Jesus. That's it. Very simple. Lavish devotion makes much of Jesus. Sadly, sadly, for many today, Jesus is nothing more than an accessory. What do I mean? Nothing more than an accessory. You know what an accessory is. Something you add to what you're wearing. You know, sort of an accessory. 
And so some of the young ladies yesterday got dressed up and uh, went out for supper somewhere up in Granbury. And as they got dressed up, and I'm sure were looking lovely, they probably added an accessory or two, bracelet, earring, something like that. Men, we accessorize too, don't we? Baseball cap, something like that. I'm reinforcing stereotypes here. But we know what we mean by accessories, don't we? Some people will accessorize their car. To my horror, they'll buy that fuzzy dice and they'll hang it from their review mirror or other accessories. We accessorize. We add things, things which are of secondary importance. My point is this. I fear that for many people, I suppose it's possible for someone here this day, that Jesus is nothing more than an accessory, an add-on, not the main thing, not the principal thing. But you see, lavish devotion makes much of Jesus. And Mary holds the Lord Jesus in such high estimation that he is the main thing, he is the only thing. And therefore, she takes that which is of greatest value to her and she offers it to him. And Christ responds, she has done a beautiful thing to me. He is a treasure of inestimable worth. You know, as I wrestled with this sermon, I do wrestle with my sermons quite often. As I wrestled with it this past week, I I was saying, well, how do I convey this? How 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 do I... transmit what a beautiful treasure the Lord Jesus is. And I, I, I could do no better because I'm no poet. I could do no better than to turn to one of the songs we often sing here at Grace Community Church. It expresses the value of the Lord Jesus beautifully, wonderfully. You know this song undoubtedly. Listen to these words. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds. And drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole. And calms the troubled breast. It's manna to the hungry soul. And to the weary rest. Dear name. The rock on which I build. My shield and hiding place. My never failing treasure. Filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. That is a true estimation of the Lord Jesus. I, I, I pray I'm actually not speaking to anyone right now, I pray there's no one here for whom the Lord Jesus is merely an accessory, an optional add-on. Take him when I feel like it. Take him when I need him. But other than that, I'm just plowing through life however I please, living for me, looking out only for me. I'm pursuing my dreams. I am chasing after my ambitions. And Jesus, yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's just a wonderful add-on, a wonderful accessory whenever it suits me. The, the, the inability, the inability to, to value, or rather the, the inability to esteem 
what is truly valuable is actually quite deadly. Let me repeat that mouthful. The inability to esteem what is truly valuable is actually quite deadly. And as I was perusing this book again, as I knew I was going to quote from it this Sunday, I I picked it up and started to look through it. I have a, a habit. It's a good habit. Whenever I read books, I take a nice highlighter, blue or pink or yellow, and I highlight all the things I like. So at some later point, I can just pick it up and just flip the pages to all the highlights. And this highlight caught my attention. It's actually not the words of of John Piper. He's quoting from someone else. And yet it illustrates perfectly what I mean when I say that the inability to esteem what is truly valuable is actually quite deadly. He writes, America today is a save-yourself society, if there ever was one. But does it work? The underdeveloped societies, countries, suffer from one set of diseases, tuberculosis, right? Malnutrition, pneumonia, parasites, typhoid, cholera, typhus. But affluent America has virtually invented a whole new set of diseases. Obesity, heart disease, strokes, lung cancer venereal disease, drug addiction, alcoholism, divorce, battered children, suicide. Take your choice. Labor-saving machines have turned out to be body-killing devices. Our affluence has allowed both mobility and isolation of the nuclear family. And as a result, our divorce courts, our prisons, and our mental institutions are flooded. In saving ourselves, we have almost lost ourselves. The disease, the problem arises from this truth. I've already stated it twice. Let me repeat it a third time. The inability to esteem what is truly valuable is actually quite deadly. Friend, do you esteem Jesus Christ? Do you understand, firstly, who he is? That Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Do you understand that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the creator and sustainer of all things, who has become a man? Do you understand, secondly, why he became a man? Do you understand that he came to give his life as a ransom for many? Do you understand that he came to bear divine justice? Do you understand that he came to set captives free? Do we comprehend? Are we able to value and esteem properly who he is? And secondly, value and esteem why he has come. Let me repeat it. The words of the Lord Jesus She has done a beautiful thing to me. Why? Because she gets it. Mary understood it. Mary understood it perfectly. She understood in whose presence she found herself. And she understood precisely why the Lord Jesus had come. And in the grand scheme of things, in the grand estimation of things, that which was of most value to to her became actually quite pitiful in her sight, and she 
poured it all out extravagantly on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistakes about it. This is the first mark, always, of lavish devotion. It makes much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a second remark. Christ's own lips. It brings us into verses 7 and 8. He states this. She has done, still referring to Mary, she has done what she could. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. She has done what she could. Now, why does Jesus see fit? Why does he feel it's necessary to make that remark? He does so because of what the disciples are saying. The disciples witness this extravagant act. The the, the disciples witness Mary's lavish devotion. And what's their response? They get all bent out of joint. And, And they begin to scold her. They begin to ridicule her. And their reasoning is this. Look. We could have taken that, that alabaster flask of ointment, we could have taken it down to the market, and somebody would have paid at least 300 denarii for it. And once they had paid that money, we could have taken it and distributed it to countless poor. How many people could we have helped? And their definitive, their definitive commentary on her lavish act of devotion is this, what a waste. The Lord Jesus tells them to be quiet. He tells him to leave her alone. And he makes this beautiful remark, comment concerning her lavish devotion. She has done what she could. Now to understand what he is saying, he reminds them, look, the poor, you always have the poor with you. You can help them whenever you want. But me, you do not always have me with you. And she has done what she could. Understand that in the context of the two great commandments. We looked at these some Sundays ago in the context of chapter 12. The second commandment is what? We are to love our neighbor as ourself. Amen. And we seek to do that. One of the very real and practical ways in which we seek to love our neighbor as ourself is to give to those in need. It is to help the poor. The Lord Jesus does not correct that. The Lord Jesus does not criticize that. He does not ridicule the notion or the idea of helping the poor. He acknowledges the second commandment. And scripture makes it clear we are to love our neighbor. And one of the meaningful, very practical, hands-on ways in which we do that is by ministering to those in need. But what is the first commandment? The first commandment from which the second commandment must always proceed. We must never invert the order. What is the first commandment? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Boys, you don't get it. The blinders are still on. The poor, you always have the poor, and you, you can help them whenever you want, and you should help them. But me, you do not always have me with you. Mary gets something you're not quite grasping. This is a unique opportunity to display and manifest your love for the living God, the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary understands it. And Mary is seeking to obey that first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength while she can. She has done all that she could. Here's the second mark of lavish devotion. Lavish devotion pours out everything for Jesus. It holds nothing back. Lavish devotion pours out everything for Jesus. And as I think of Grace Community Church, I I give thanks to God for for many things, many reasons. 
uh, one of the reasons is I, I thank God for his grace among us as evident in people's generosity in giving, whether it be financially or giving of their, their strengths and their abilities, giving of their time, uh, caring for others. And we have so many wonderful displays if we care to look around among us at lavish devotion, this pouring out of everything for Jesus, out of love for him and and expressed in love for others. And I have many, many examples of this I can, I can, I can refer to it as I look back over the decades. One that stands out in my mind is, uh, is, is back in the year of 1996. Allison and I spent a few months in, in the country of Angola, in the capital city of Luanda, and I taught at a, a Bible school. And this Bible school would convene for only one month out of the year and would gather young men, uh, elders, pastors from all over the country in Luanda, house them, and just teach them intensively for, for one month. And so I was there to teach through the book of Ephesians. And there were, I think, if memory serves me correctly, maybe 150 young men who had gathered from all over the country of Angola. Some of them, it had taken weeks for them to get there. And then they were housed, and from sunup to sundown, in oppressive heat, they would dedicate themselves to the study of God's word. It was a wonderful example of lavish devotion, of these young men pouring themselves out These young men holding nothing back in their pursuit of godliness, in their pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one young man in particular, his name was Vasco. He would have been in his 30s at the time. And he was from a region originally in the country which was behind rebel control because Angola was in the grip of civil war at the time. And he had determined that at the end of this Bible school, he was going to travel back to his hometown, which was still behind rebel control, in order to witness, in order to proclaim the gospel, to unsaved relatives, unsaved friends, in a community where the gospel, there had been little gospel exposure. And off he set that young man, lavish devotion, pouring out everything for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he was never heard of again. You know, he's numbered among the martyrs now in glory. Never heard of again. But a young man who had a proper assessment of things, a young man who possessed the ability to evaluate. A young man who possessed the ability to measure eternity against the present. To measure the spiritual against the temporal. A young man enamored with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a young man who displayed such lavish devotion and pouring out everything for Jesus. Here's a question. And, you know, I thank God, I don't think it is for many of us. I'm going to ask a few questions. I thank God, I don't think it is for many of us. But it might be for a handful of us. And it would be remiss of me as 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 a preacher not to ask these difficult questions. Does my devotion inconvenience me? I wouldn't want to inconvenience myself when it comes to my devotion to the Lord Jesus. Does my devotion inconvenience me? Is seeking Jesus in his word an inconvenience? Is getting out of bed on a Sunday morning to worship with the body of Christ an inconvenience? 
is participating in a care group. Not thinking of myself, but others. An inconvenience. Is there something we want more than Jesus? Is there something I am living for which captures my heart and grips my affections far more than Jesus simply making him an accessory? Are we pampering ourselves or abandoning ourselves? Are we seeking to be comfortable or striving to be faithful? Is our motivating concern what this does for me or what this does for others? That is a sure mark, friends. It is a sure characteristic. I pray God is evident in all of us, each and every one of us. I know for certain it is in most of us, and I thank God for it. Lavish devotion pours out everything for Jesus. Now, his third remark brings us into verse 8. And notice what he says at the outset of that verse. This, again, is Jesus' third remark as he responds to the disciples and as he comments on Mary's lavish devotion. Look at what he says. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. That's his third remark. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Do you know what that means? It simply means this. Mary knows exactly what is coming. She sees it. She sees it all in vivid color transpiring before her very eyes. She has heard the Lord Jesus. It's recorded in chapter 8. It's recorded again in chapter 9. It's recorded a third time in chapter 10. Who knows how many times he actually uttered the words. But she at some point has heard the Lord Jesus say, I must go up to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, I will be betrayed. I will be handed over to the priests and to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're going to do to me whatever they like. They're going to arrest me. They're going to abuse me. They're going to crucify me. And after three days, I will rise again. She's heard it. Jesus is now where? In Jerusalem. He is just engaged on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday in running battles with the priests and the scribes, the Jewish religious authorities in the temple. She knows what they are plotting. She knows it is just a matter of time before they arrest him and before they kill him. She knows it is coming. Now here's a question. Does Mary also understand, evidently so, Does she also understand, does she also know, she will not have access to his body after he is dead? She knows that. She knows he is going to be condemned as a common criminal. She knows the Lord of glory is going to be crucified. She knows his body will be cast into a tomb. She knows she will not have the opportunity She knows she will not have the access to anoint his body for burial. So what does she do? She does what she she can while still presented with an opportunity. And she brings that ointment. She brings that perfume. She anoints the Lord Jesus. And Jesus knows precisely what Mary knows. Jesus sees through the act 
that Mary perceives something. The disciples, it's still fuzzy. Their heads are still in the clouds to some degree. But Mary sees it. She's heard him declare it. She knows what's coming. She knows she won't have access. So she anoints him now. And Jesus himself comments, she has anointed my body before him for burial. Now here's the mark. Here's the lesson concerning lavish devotion. This is mark number three. Lavish devotion responds to what Jesus has done. That's it. Again, very simple. Lavish devotion responds to what Jesus has done. Popular piety isn't really much to talk of today in, in, among Western Christi- within Western Christianity. Really fallen on hard times. And in my estimation, it, it has fallen upon hard times Because piety, how we live, is a reflection of our understanding and appreciation of what Jesus has done. So according to popular piety, I've penned this, and I'm going to read this because I want to be so careful here. Now listen to these words. According to popular piety, God is a loving Father who wants us to be happy all the time. The cross, according to popular piety, is merely an event which God allowed to happen in order to show us how special we are. Jesus, well, Jesus, he is as heartwarming as a wet puppy dog with big brown eyes in front of a roaring fire. This Jesus loves me unconditionally. He doesn't unconditionally command me to repent. This Jesus wills my prosperity. He doesn't will my adversity. This Jesus is primarily concerned about my happiness, not my holiness. This Jesus only requires a half-baked faith, not absolute allegiance. This Jesus shows great latitude when it comes to what I believe and how I behave. He doesn't ordain a narrow gate that leads to a narrow way. In the words of Michael Horton, we can be fairly certain that the Jesus we like, he's speaking of popular piety, the Jesus that we feel most comfortable around, the Jesus who arouses our sympathy, is not the historical Jesus. He is the product of popular piety. And the result is a lukewarm, compromising brand of Christianity. Anything but lavish devotion. You see, lavish devotion responds to what Jesus has done. Mary poured out everything. Why? Because she knew Jesus was about to pour out everything. In the words of Isaiah 53, verse 12, he poured out his soul to death. His death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, was the payment of a debt to divine justice on our behalf. What do we owe him? Again, I struggled this past week trying to answer that, so I turned to one of the hymns we often sing here. 
were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That is the third unmistakable mark of lavish devotion. It responds to what Jesus has done. And so again, remember the backdrop. You have the plotting of the scribes and the priests. You have the impending betrayal of Judas himself. You have this hostile opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet shining forth brilliantly this lavish devotion as Mary seeks out and finds the Lord Jesus, takes that which is of greatest value to her, pours it all out for him, understanding what? That he is on the cusp of pouring out all for her. And yet Jesus actually says one more thing, and this brings us to our conclusion. He's made three remarks, but he actually adds a fourth by way of conclusion. We see it there in verse 9. It's a promise. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that's what I'm doing right now, proclaiming the gospel, that there is salvation in no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ through his substitutionary death. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Friend, do you want to make a difference? Do you want your life to count? Then learn from this woman. The lesson is simply this. The point of life is Jesus. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our Father, we make that our ambition before you this day. We thank you for your word again, for its clarity and its authority. We thank you for the wonderful lessons and truths it possesses. We praise you for the way of salvation that it unfolds. We praise you because it makes much of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, our Father, that we would make much of Christ, that he would be the main thing, the principal thing, that he would be preeminent in every sphere, in every corner of our lives. We pray that your gospel would change us. We pray that your gospel would grip us. We pray that your gospel would stir us. That as we ponder the depths of our own depravity and as we ponder the heights of your grace and mercy, that truly we would emulate this woman, Mary, whom we remember 2,000 years later. And truly, as the Lord Jesus looks upon us, as the Lord Jesus looks upon our lives filled with grace, stirred and governed by the Holy Spirit, that truly he might be able to say, they have done a beautiful thing to me. We make this our prayer in his precious and worthy name. Amen.